The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. And I said, great, I'm leaving now and I'm going to get the book. And I just left. Yeah. And I went and I got the book and I read it at Cafe Mogador on St. Mark's Place across the street from my apartment. And I was shook. I was just shook. It was, it was, uh, there has been no greater gift to me in my life than that book in that moment. Mm, That's author Amanda Stern talking about the book that changed her life, Letters to a Young Poet by the German modernist. Reiner Maria Rilke. It's a curious little book, a good book for spring, a book that inspires hope and optimism, and yet its message is one of solitude and even, one might say, despair. Go into yourself, Rilke tells the young poet who reached out to him. No one can help you. Nobody. In ten brief letters, Rilke sets forth a credo so powerful it has reached across continents and decades, finding a home in the minds of millions, including a young, aching woman searching for answers at a Moroccan cafe in New York City. Amanda Stern and Reiner Maria Rilke, today on The History of Literature. Jack Wilson. Oh, I am so glad that you could join me today. Even as America is in trouble, America is burning, America, well, let's save those thoughts for now. We're not looking outside today. We're looking within. You might say that's where we will find the right path, that looking in will be our salvation, and maybe you are right. Maybe that's what we should all try to do. And if that's the case, we have no better guide than our poet today, Reiner Maria Rilke, who's like a Virgil of the creative soul, or the searching soul. Virgil, poor Virgil, who Dante had to damn because Virgil came before Christ, but who Dante couldn't quite throw into the pit of hellfire and anonymity. He became the trusted friend, the guide, the fellow spirit, who doesn't just offer poetic advice, but who takes us into the darkest depths imaginable. Well, in this book, Letters to a Young Poet, Rilke performs a similar feat, only the darkness this time is not under the earth, but within us all. What dark corners are there? How do we enlighten them? Rilke doesn't tell us, but he hands us the torch and shows us how to soak it in oil and light the match. And on we go. A little flowery here for the history of literature, but maybe I'm in a poetic mood. Maybe the conversation with Amanda has reminded me of my own poetic yearnings. You can hear all about that sordid story in our 
bad poetry episode, if you're interested. But don't go there yet. First, you are going to want to listen to this conversation. Amanda has such a fascinating story, and she's such a good teller of that story. I don't want to overpromise, but I do think this is one you are going to enjoy. Have I earned that credibility with you, dear listeners? I hope that I have. I'm not a hype machine. You know that. I'm still the guy in the ditch with the towel over his head. Oh, excuse me. There's someone knocking at the door. Yes, hello? Who is that? Oh. Oh. Hello. It's our I'm good Elizabeth news. Bennett, Elizabeth star Bennett. of the novel Pride and Prejudice. The star. Here to deliver a morsel of news. Yes. Mr. Darcy and I are expecting. Oh. Huzzah oh. to us. Huzzah. However, it is a truth universally acknowledged mm. that a young couple in possession of an infant must be in want of some sleep. Yes, Fortunately, our true. impoverished neighbor, Mr. Jack Wilson, has offered to babysit our beloved little one so Darcy and I can catch some Zeds. Mm. Won't you please support the cause of love, literature, and new life? We shall be eternally grateful for your good sense and your good sensibility. Mm, Elizabeth Bennett, that's certainly good news. I will be happy to babysit, of course. Your impoverished neighbor, that's about the nicest thing any of these literary characters have ever said about me, actually. (laughs) Uh, Well, if you would like to help make this all happen, you can sign up at our Patreon account, historyofliterature.com slash shop. Oh, sorry, wait, that's not the right link to the Patreon account, is it? That's where you go to buy all the swag, like mugs and tote bags and the virtual coffee option, which is essentially a one-time donation. For the Patreon account, you head over to patreon.com slash literature, where you can join the ranks of those who are throwing a few coins in my cup every month to help me keep the lights on. When you're climbing out of a ditch, any helping hand is very much appreciated. This week, we're thanking—oh, we have a big list this time. We're thanking new patrons Shay, Cordelia, Marshall, Kim, Rebecca, Kara, Tommy, Chris, Alexandria— Roger, Nicole, Michelle, Kelly, Heidi, and Raymond. Many thanks to you and all our patrons, and I will try to get some more special bonus content up there for you to enjoy very soon. Where were we? The ditch. Yes, the ditch. The guy in the ditch with the towel over his head. Me. I got a note the other day from Kate. Kate in the UK, who bought me two virtual coffees at historyofliterature.com slash shop and left me a note that said, After listening to Tuesday's podcast, I hope this helps keep you going and maybe come out from under that towel. Take care, Sue. Thank you, Sue. Tuesday was special. I earned a few sharp words from some angry fellow Americans who took exception to some positions I staked staked out. Staked out, if you can call it that. I was pretty overwhelmed, people. This was a few hours after watching my city, Washington, D.C., being filled with tear gas and mounted police, clearing a park full of peaceful protesters. I had some thoughts. I was wound up. I needed to say a few things. So, not so much staked out as cried out. That's what it was. A four in the morning howl. Who will help us? Who will solve our problem? How will we handle this? What are we going to do? I also got this email from Shanitra, subject, America in Crisis. 
Shanitra writes, as an African-American woman and mother to three wonderful African-American boys, I just want to say thank you, Jack. Thank you. You're welcome, Shanitra. And thank you for raising those wonderful boys. Keep them safe and keep them growing, for they and their fellow children are our future. I hope they lead us to a better world. We'll have a lot more to say about race. Our three-part series on Baldwin and Faulkner has touched off a bit of dialogue, at least in my email inbox. I want to explore that fully. And I think we're going to give some more time to Mr. Faulkner. Shanitra actually suggested it, pointing me toward another look at Faulkner for us to round things out a bit. Today, though, we don't have too much time because I want to get to this interview with Amanda. Amanda. Wow. What can I say? You'll hear it all in a moment. Amanda has been through some stuff. She has lived a life, a kind of a nightmare for much of it, 20 years in the wilderness, or maybe I should say a prison, trapped. And she emerged from it when Mr. Rilke and his book came her way. That was one of the big helping hands she received. It's like she was Edmond Dante's, trapped in the cell, jailed through no fault of his own, when he encountered the priest who taught him how to see the light and turned him into a wealthy man called the Count of Monte Cristo, who could go seek vengeance on all his enemies. Amanda didn't use her powers for vengeance unless you count writing a novel, which she wrote with a vengeance, it sounds like. We'll hear all about it soon. Reiner Maria Rilke was born in 1875, the son of a German military officer and a wildly religious mother. He went to military school, but gave up a life of soldiering for a life in the arts, studying philosophy and history and art, working as a secretary for the sculptor Rodin, and writing some of the most compelling poetry of the modernist era. The panther is his, and the torso of an archaic Apollo, and his twin masterpieces, the collections Sonnets to Orpheus and the Duino Elegies. He's been called an existential materialist, as he sought to find a kind of religiosity in things, in the things of this world, elevating his impressions, living through art as well as life. He was inspired by Rodin and Cezanne, and he went on to inspire a flood of poets, including the very next wave, led by W.H. Auden, who revered Rilke and his works. He married a woman named Clara, but perhaps more famously had an earlier affair with the extraordinary Lou Andreas Salome, who suggested that he change his name from René to Reiner, which she thought sounded more masculine and Germanic. Rilke complied. One gets the sense that Lou Salome was hard, a hard woman to turn down. Nietzsche proposed marriage to her repeatedly, and she rejected him just as repeatedly. She was also rumored to be having an affair with Sigmund Freud who said that she knew people better than they knew themselves. Kind of an interesting comment for him, of all people, to make. It's a little like Michelangelo, paying a lover a compliment by saying she's especially good at lying on her back and painting ceilings. Lou Salome also took Rilke to Russia and made him learn Russian so he could read Tolstoy, and then Rilke met Tolstoy. He traveled all over Europe and Russia, and he was a prodigious letter writer, finding the time somehow, even as he wrote a novel and plays and the poetry for which we know him best today. And in that batch of letters was a small set of ten that he wrote to a young man named Franz Kappas, 
Kappas had been a student at the very school that Rilke had once attended, the military school, and he wasn't sure, Franz wasn't, if he wanted to be a military student. He liked poetry, in fact. As it happened, he was reading Rilke, with no idea that Rilke had attended the school. A professor saw the book, the professor who had no idea that Rilke was now a poet. The professor pointed out the connection, and young Franz wrote to Rilke, asking for some advice on his verses and whether he should pursue poetry with a capital P or continue down the path of a military career. Rilke had faced a similar choice a decade or so before. Rilke responded with a blasting bit of advice. Reminds me of a person who asks for a sip of water and gets a fire hose to the face in return. I'm not sure Kappas was expecting what he got, but he kept up the correspondence, and so did Rilke, and in the end, we all wound up with this beautiful little book in which a great soul delivers advice to a searching young person. Universal advice that can apply to young people everywhere. People, really, but young people in particular. Or that side of us that is young, that side of us that is questioning what life has to offer us, that side of us that is searching for help, for answers, for a sign, for a way forward, for meaning. How do we do it? How do we live? There are so many things to do, so many paths to take, so many doors that are open, and yet as we get older, those doors close too. We have to make choices. We have to deal with things. We have to cope. But how? What advice is there? Where do we turn? We can read about which profession to choose, which city to live in, the pros and cons of a college to attend, or a car to buy, or renting a house versus buying a house. But the answer to happiness might not be as simple as reading a Consumer Reports article, living a life breathing the right air, thinking the right thoughts. There's no ranking or reviews that will help us there. How do we cross the bridge from existential doubt and fear to a kind of fulfillment that we all crave? How do we push through and come out the other side? How do we live? How do we love? How do we know? There are very few places to turn for these answers. Rilke and this little book is one of them. Amanda Stern is going to tell us about her path as a writer, as a literary impresario, as an artist, a woman, a daughter, a soul in crisis. We're going to hear about her as a reader and an artist and a searcher and a survivor. We're going to hear about her as a human being. Rilke wrote to Franz Kappas. He also wrote to her. He wrote his book to us, for us. He is our Virgil. And we, like Dante, dip into darkness as the way to come up for air and point ourselves toward paradise. Oh, mirror in the sky What is love? Can the child within my heart rise above? Can I sail through the changes? Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery 
perfect for the whole family. Join the cat in the hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Well, I've been afraid of changing because I... Okay, joining me now is Amanda Stern, the host of the podcast Bookable, which features conversations with established authors and emerging talent. Amanda is herself the author of a novel called The Long Haul and a memoir called Little Panic, Dispatches from an Anxious Life, and 11 children's books, which she's written under pseudonyms. She's also been a prominent member of the New York literary scene, hosting a popular music and reading series at Joe's Pub and Symphony Space, and serving as a host slash impresario of many other events and activities. Amanda Stern, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you so much for having me, Jack. It's a pleasure. I'm a little breathless. That was a whole paragraph. That took me a while to uh, <laughs> to list off all your accomplishments. Well, I don't know if they're necessarily <laughs> accomplishments, but they're, I have to keep busy or something happens to me. <laughs> okay, so we're, we're so, going to be talking— So really they're oh, distractions. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I look at them as uh, you've uh, you've definitely been busy. That's good. Uh, True so story. we're going to be talking about Rilke today and his book, Letters to a Young Poet. But first, let's talk about you. Tell us where you began. What? Where were you? Where was your childhood? Where was it, or what was it? Uh, well, let's do both. But let's <laughs> let's start with where. Where did you grow up? Okay, so. I grew up in Greenwich Village on mm. McDougal Street between Ble- Bleecker and Houston in a secret garden mm. called the McDougal Sullivan Gardens. Yeah. Right. Um, it was pretty, it's pretty idyllic. Um, there were about uh, 30 children uh, who lived in the garden at the same time mm. that I was growing up. So I was constantly outside in the garden and playing with all the other kids and going in and out of other people's houses and right. yeah it was it was kind of amazing now were your parents artistic or bohemians or was this already the point where greenwich village you needed money in order to live there no it was before money um mm-hmm. was needed um i mean money is always needed but right. my mom was um is an artist and she started out as a sculptor and then she moved on to uh photography and she was she was a bohemian she's 
not so much a bohemian anymore, but she's definitely a creative, artistically minded human being. Hmm. And I read that your Manhattan roots go way back. Yes. There, there's some discussion whether we're fifth generation or fourth, but we are definitely fourth generation Native New Yorkers, all Manhattan based. Wow. So I, f- I feel very strongly about New York City, uh, Manhattan in general, and, and who counts as a real New Yorker. Yeah. I have strong opinions. <laughs> <laughs> right. I have been part of many conversations like that where a, a genuine New Yorker will, uh, will expose the, <laughs> the flaws of someone who says yeah. they're from New York and they're actually from New Jersey or they're from upstate New York or it kills me. <laughs> It kills. I gotta. I want to round all those people up, sit them down, and have just a very open conversation. <laughs> right. So then, as a young child, I've read you had an undiagnosed panic disorder. Was part of your childhood? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, it was my entire childhood. Ah. Yeah. So I I grew up with an undiagnosed panic disorder. I've been a professional panicker since. I think before I could talk, mm. my I don't have a, a single solitary memory of life without that all-encompassing dread filling my body. Oh, right. So my childhood was was wonderful in the sense that I had an amazing house, I had siblings, I had parents, I had a community, but it was horrible because I was sort of trapped in this existential terror, mm. and I couldn't get the help I needed for it. I couldn't communicate what was happening to me. And it felt really mortifying what was happening to me. So I I didn't try to communicate it mm. so much as just st- stay home. I needed to stay home all the time and be near yeah. my mom and make sure nothing happened to her. And I was convinced that if I left her for anything, for school, for my dad's, for an overnight, that she would die or disappear. But if I was there watching her, she would be safe. So right. that was my entire childhood. Right. And then yeah. there was the, the horrible tragedy of Aton Potts, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Almost. Uh, Aton Pates. Aton Pates. But uh, yes. Which yeah. uh, I was reading about it in 1979. A six-year-old boy was walking to the school bus stop in Soho for the first time, and he disappeared. And it became a, a nationwide story with uh, his face on milk cartons and widespread news. And it, it sounds like it was close to home for you. Yeah, it was. It hit very close to home. He he lived about six blocks away from me. He was mm. younger. You know, it, it sort of confirmed my deepest fears that if you're yeah. not watching someone, they can just vanish into thin air, which is essentially what how people described his disappearance. You yeah. know, he just vanished. He just right. disappeared. I, because I had such anxiety and panic attacks about leaving my mom i i really over identified with um with him as a potentially kidnapped little boy like i couldn't help but feel what he must be feeling yeah and really take that into my body that terror of of being separated from your mother and not being able to communicate where you are to be saved. So I really was quite related to that. Yeah. To that fear and terror. Did you have the sense at a young age that other people would look at you and say, well, you have no reason really to be afraid or you have no reason to be unhappy. Look at you have this beautiful life. You have all these 
these advantages or these comforts that other people don't have? And were you feeling like you had to be quiet about what was affecting you? Because objectively speaking, adults tend to sort of say to children, come on, don't be so self-absorbed. Don't be such a complainer. Just uh, recognize how great life is and what the advantages are that you have and count your blessings and that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it was slightly different. I, you know, I, I communicated as best I could, I would say, don't make me go, you know, I would panic and I would yeah. be crying and, and beg, beg to stay home, beg and beg and beg. So that was my style of communicating mm. that I was terrified. So the protestations that came from the adults were less, you have a great life, but saying things like, a weekend isn't very long. You'll be home before you know it. Mm. And you won't be far. And uh, two days goes really fast. Right. And just things that didn't help me and, and sort of negated my terror yeah. and just overlooked exactly the very specific and exquisite pain that I was in. So I felt like I they didn't get it. They didn't right. understand. And so it felt even more mortifying because I thought, oh, I'm 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 broken. Like there's something that is so specifically wrong with me, but no one seems able to see it. I'm throwing myself on the ground, tearing my hair out, screaming and crying and passing out. And no one is <laughs> understanding what I need. So yeah. I must really be flawed. Right. And I just you know, I wanted to not be flawed. So yeah. the context of all of those comments from the grownups is you're not being rational. And if you would only just listen to reason and you probably were thinking, well, I get it that a weekend is not very long, but that doesn't change how I feel about that weekend. Exactly. Yeah. I, I kept on, I, I didn't really know how to say, but it's, it's the door. It's during the weekend. It's yeah. the, it's the time it's the every moment passing that I need help with. It's the it's the in between, you know, it's the in between right now and when I get home that that I'm worried about yeah. not how fast it goes, because it does. You know, it doesn't go fast. It Right. It's one long, endless, you know, away. Yeah. And were you reading a lot? I was. It's I had a very interesting relationship with books when I was young. Yeah. I was very soothed, very calmed by books, mm. and it was a really great way for me to to escape my anxiety and to feel something else and to feel grounded. And because of that, because they were so, there was like medicine, you know, I was self-medicating with books, Yeah, but I wouldn't challenge myself so much and move on to harder reading material. I would just sort of recycle the Ramona and Beezus and, um, oh. you know, the Moffats and all these sort of these books that I had maybe outgrown by the time I was like eight or nine. But yeah. I, I just kept on reading them because I was afraid that harder material would evoke something in me I was trying to avoid. Right. And so I just sort of, I read down instead yeah. of up. Oh, that's so interesting. For I a was, long time. I was wondering if you were going to seek out kids who were being adventurous or something, you'd be compelled to locate books like that, or if you were drawn to books like that. It sounds like books were more like a, a security blanket or something, that it was a, a safe space for you to to find some refuge in. 
Yeah, I mean, I I don't think that I knew enough to know that there were other ways to be that you could sort of choose and push yourself to be a different way. Right. I just thought I was fundamentally broken and like that something was medically and biologically wrong with me. So I didn't have a choice to be any other way or to learn to be another way. But, you know, I, I definitely saw aspects of myself in characters and, and that made me feel less abnormal. I related to Ramona Quimby a lot and to uh, Winnie, uh, Winnie, I can't remember her last name in Tuck Everlasting. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. They were very grounding, calming forces for me. Yeah. Ramona, I hadn't thought of that, the connection with Ramona, but of course, that's, she feels oh, so yeah. misunderstood so much of the time. Yep. I loved Ramona. I really, I felt so connected to her. Mm. I felt like we were the same person. I just wanted, to have her straight hair and get a pixie haircut and have a heart-shaped <laughs> face. I, I didn't have any of those things. <laughs> I think I was a little scared of Ramona. Oh, yeah. say more. Yeah, well, I think I was such a follow-the-rules kid, and she would mm. squeeze all the toothpaste out of the tube, or she, I, I just, I think I was worried that she was going to get herself in trouble. And that I wasn't going right. to find it funny. I was going to find it terrifying that she might displease the, the elders and then pay the consequences for it. I think I felt that way about Fudge, too, in the, the Judy Bloom books. I much oh, I more Fudge. identified with Peter. That I, I, Fascinating. I, I got it that Fudge was funny and that he made the book great. But I definitely was more on the side of the, the safe uh, Peter who uh, didn't... <laughs> <laughs> didn't swim too far away yeah. from the shore. <laughs> That's so fascinating. And Beezus, who was also oh, yeah. a yep. good girl, good, a good <laughs> rule follower. Yep. I was going to trace your relationship with literature, but I feel like we need to maybe talk a little bit more about the panic disorder and when you kind of started to recognize what was happening and, and start to address some of the issues. Well, when I started recognizing what was happening to me, was very... It wasn't close to the time in which I started to get help for it or mm. seek to understand it more. Mm -hmm. I knew something was, I knew something was wrong always, but it was only when I, I think that I was in high school and my childhood fears were still with me. I hadn't yeah. outgrown them. Right. And, and then it became truly mortifying and humiliating, you know, that I couldn't leave my mom when I didn't even like her. Mm. You know, I was a teenager. Yeah. I, yeah. I I wasn't I wasn't allowed to like my mom. You know, that was a, that was in the rule book of how to be a teenager. So yeah. I wanted to be anywhere but near her, but I couldn't leave because I would have these horrible attacks of, mm. you know, and feel like I was dying. Yeah. So um it really wasn't until I was in college and uh, that things started to really fall apart and I started to really spiral. And it wasn't until I was out of college when I was about 25 that I was diagnosed with a panic disorder. And that's when everything became very suddenly clear. Mm. And that's, that's when I started to read everything I could about it. And that was around the same time that I discovered letters to a young poet. Mm. It was, you know, it was a time of 
of great relief and also tremendous education. I just wanted to know absolutely everything I could and sort of also go back through my entire life and figure out who could I have been, you know, if I had known this, who could I have been? So most of my life has been about really sort of taking apart my childhood and those feelings and sort of tracing back to my childhood the the things that I still suffer from and trying to untangle them from the, the anxiety or just trying to find the root, the exact root of the anxiety and the exacerbations of the anxiety. And Yeah. Did you go away to college? I did. I went to Bennington for a year. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I remember that first day, um, I was pet- I was petrified. I mean, I was like, you know, a six-year-old child leaving yeah. her mom. And um, I was just petrified. And I, 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 by that point, I had really developed a very, very strong persona to take care of the rest of me. So it was like, you know, I was like a bouncer mm. who's like a softy inside. And I just, I, I was really like, I, I was tough. I was a tough girl. I was, you know, sarcastic and slightly mean and, and a little scary and intimidating mm. because I needed to project a strength I did not have. Yeah. So that people wouldn't expect anything from me or ask anything of me or even suspect that I yeah. was crying myself to sleep. Yeah. You thought if you exposed yourself as vulnerable in some way, people might try to help or might try to dig in where uh you you didn't want that you didn't want them to be that close or to to dig in that hard. You you want you needed a shell to protect. Yeah. I never thought anyone would help me though. I never it never occurred to me. That if I exposed any of this, that anyone would try and help me. It was more that I was so, so totally and entirely convinced that everyone else was right and I was wrong. Like they had made me in, they had, I was the wrong type of human being. I was so convinced of that, that I needed to protect that and not let on that I was the flaw in the universe. Yeah. And that I wasn't like everyone else and I didn't know why. I just knew that I couldn't let them know that. Yeah. Or I don't know, I would want or I'd die. Did you feel ashamed or did you feel like it was just a secret you couldn't reveal? I felt very ashamed. I was yeah. filled with shame. Ugh. It was shame, humiliation, mortification. Yeah, it was, you know, it's it felt like I, you know, exposing the most vulnerable part of me, uh, you know, when to people I didn't trust because I didn't really trust anyone. Yeah. You know, because no one seemed to understand me or get me or, you know, see me. Yeah. You know, you and I have never met. This is the first, though. I'm actually sitting here. My eyes are filled with tears. <laughs> uh, so I'm sorry. Oh, I'm uh, sorry. Just, well, no, just thinking about for 20 years, basically, you lived with this completely debilitating shame. It's just a, it's it's horrible that you uh, had to experience so much of life this way. It must have been 
well, let's talk about the recovery. It must have felt like such a relief when you when you got the diagnosis and you were able to start recognizing here's why that there was a reason for it and you weren't the only one who this ever happened to. It wasn't a a dark source of shame, but actually a condition that was visited upon you not out of choice, but just that that was just a fact. Exactly. And it had a name. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the fact that it had a name made me feel more real. Mm-hmm. It made me feel like I, you know, oh, I suffer from an actual condition that normal other human beings who are normal and I'm not normal suffer yeah. from. So perhaps I'm more normal than I realize. And you know, the whole idea of normalcy was huge for me because I really didn't, I really believed I wasn't normal. And it took me years and years to realize that, that there's no such thing. And, yeah. you know, nor- normal is a, a concept that a bunch of old white men made up yeah. when they were creating tests to score people and categorize and sort them. Right. So, you know, so, yeah, it was a it was such a relief. And but it didn't it didn't actually motivate me to talk openly about it or to tell people I yeah. still hit it. I was still embarrassed. Right. I was still driven by this entire lifetime of shame. Right. So it wasn't until I actually um, something happened to me that was the the worst, best possible thing that could happen, which is I had a, a panic attack live on stage in front of an audience. Mm. That's when it sort of broke. And, yeah. and I like started the you know the the fourth wall came down or right. went up or whatever the expression is right okay. and I, yeah i just started being really open about it i want to circle back to that because i definitely want to hear about okay. it but i wanted to fill in some of the the gaps here I, first of all i just wanted to know when you were saying earlier that you went back through your life and you thought who who I might have been, you know, you were wondering who you could have been had this not happened. Were you thinking that you could have been really successful or or that you could have, you know, conquered the world? Or were you just thinking, I could have had a normal life, I could have been just a a, a person who could do things like go away for the weekend or could have spent my teenage years uh, without having fears of being apart from my mother? Yeah, it was sort of all of that. Yeah. I guess a part of me felt like I would have more success than I have, that I would have, you know, maybe the career that I've wanted to have since I was 10, yeah. um, you know, which is as a working literary novelist. Um, mm. But there was so much anxiety wrapped around, you know, any sort of exposure of self. Yeah. And that includes, you know, publishing a novel so you know i had such little belief in myself that it prevented me from doing the things i really wanted to do and there were a lot of things that i was terrified of doing and i forced myself to do them anyway and i that's sort of how i've conquered each new debilitating fear that i had yeah and continue and continue to do it that way you know i just i i face it in order to get through it i don't necessarily get over it but i i i take the tension out of it i i i take some of the air out of it it becomes less strong yeah where was literature then as you got older we talked about the books when you were younger and you were kind of reading down you decided you wanted to write novels were you 
carrying that through high school and college? Were you writing fiction? Were you reading? Uh, you know, what kind of books were you reading at that point? So when I was around 10 or 11, I read, what were the, there was, I think there were two books, but there were one in particular. Oh, yeah, I remember. I The last, I think the last book that I re- was reading down to was Anastasia Krupnik. Mm. I don't know if you know mm-hmm. those books. I do. Yep. But her dad was a novelist or a poet. He was one of the two. I can't remember. And they lived in Cambridge. And they lived in an apartment lined with books. And I don't know what it was about it, but I thought, that's the life I want. I want to be a novelist and live in Cambridge and live in a house lined with books. I didn't really even relate to Anastasia so much. It was more (laughs) the dad. It was so like... It was strange, but I had always really been drawn to books in some way. Quite honestly, it didn't occur to me until like this month that the reason that I wanted to write books, I think, I believe, is to to help other people feel more calm Mm. because that's what they did for me. Yeah. They were anchors for me and they made me feel more seen and connected and grounded and i think that that is why what i wanted to do for other people and then i read tuck everlasting and it was when i read tuck everlasting that i understood um for the first time what a book is meant to do and Mm. what a metaphor is and i suddenly understood that books were talking to you on on multiple levels and one was the surface and the other was the subtext. And, and I, there was something about that that I really loved. And so I wrote a novel when I was 10 or 11 in pencil. It was terrible, but you know, <laughs> it was about two right. kids who cut school to go to a David Bowie concert and get caught by a truant officer. But so I was, I started writing then and I'd been writing. All, you know, I wrote all throughout high school. I was a, I wrote a play in 10th grade and it was produced at our school. I directed it and produced it. And then I was part of a theater company and I wrote plays with them and one was produced off Broadway. So I was really like very actively writing. Yeah. And I was reading. I went to a very progressive high school. And so I was reading James Baldwin and Richard Wright and Toni Morrison from, you know, ninth grade on. And... Those books were really powerful and influential to me. That's how I was raised, in a way, on these on these books that made me think in a way that made me more uh, that made me think in a deeper, richer way and more globally. Mm. So, yeah, and I just went on from there, and I I just never stopped writing. Yeah. And I tried all these different careers. I tried other careers and. The one constant was was writing. Yeah, writing was always the thing that grounded me and made me feel connected to other people. But yeah. I was still I had so much anxiety around showing my work because yeah. so much of what I write is me. Right, and showing myself in that way was just very scary. Yeah, and let's talk about the moment on the stage. Had you given? Was that something you were routinely doing? Were you making yourself do readings and things? Or was this sort of the first time you were trying to push yourself that far? No, I had pushed myself that far in high school when I I was uh, in the off-Broadway play Mm -hmm. in my senior year of high school. And I I was 
so terrified. I had terrible stage fright. I was throwing up in the bathroom beforehand. and But I really wanted, you know, it's really, it's tough to be a kid with a panic disorder who wants to be on stage. You know, it's, it's like a real paradox. Mm. And I, you know, I wanted to perform always since I was little, but, you know, I was, I had this huge, um, yeah. insurmountable conflict. Right. And so I would force myself to do it and I would get very sick leading up to it and panic for a week in advance or two weeks in advance. And, and then I do it and I would feel more alive than I'd ever felt. And so when I had a panic attack on stage, I was 30, I don't know, 35 maybe. And it was when I was hosting Happy Ending, which is my music and literary event that I did for 15 years. Yeah. So I hosted every event. So I was always on stage. I just didn't read my own work. I just presented. And I had been a comic before that. I had a, um, a show with Mark Marin that was live on stage. And, you know, I would panic and throw up before that, too. Yeah. But, yeah, I just I, – I really – would go towards the thing that scared me. But the thing that scared me the most was going on stage and having a panic attack. And then it happened. Yeah. And part of the uh, Happy Ending series was to encourage writers to take a risk on stage, right? Yes. Yes, exactly. How did you try to bring that about? And what was the reason you were encouraging them to do that? Well, my first book came out when I was 33, and I went on um, a book tour, and I found that I could only feel comfortable reading if I made the audience laugh. So I would always have to do something before I read to make the audience laugh, so I felt like they were on my side, hmm. and um, or I felt connected to them in some way. And I realized that it was becoming a, a thing for me, and it was helping me give better readings Mm. if I focused on how was I going to make them laugh? What was I going to do? And when I started to put my reading series together, I I realized that I wanted to kind of do that for other authors. I wanted to take away their fear of reading in public by giving them something else to worry about. Mm. And that, that worry was the risk. And they didn't realize that that's why I was doing it. And I never told them that I was doing it so that they wouldn't worry about the real reason they were there. Yeah. And they they would give a great reading. So people thought I just wanted them to humiliate themselves, but <laughs> not at all what I wanted. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and you would do that by asking them to sing a song or or something that would be outside of their comfort zone. Yeah, I mean, they chose it. I said, you, you're you required to do something on stage you've never done before. It can be uh, anything. It could yeah. be showing off a scar. It could be reading naked. Like, you decide. It's up I to see. you. Right, right. And pe- but people would really go all out, you know. Some people wouldn't, but other people <laughs> would. And they'd create costumes and hire people and, and do, yeah, like create performances or, or reenact performances that they'd done before that failed and... But, you know, a lot of authors would say, like, all right, now it's time for me to embarrass myself. Now it's time for me to humiliate myself. And I was like, that is not what I'm asking. (laughs) (laughs) But I I wouldn't correct them because it was really – it told me so much about an author when they interpreted it like that. Right. It was just – it was all very, very interesting. 
But that was the reason behind it. The reason behind it was to give them something else to worry about. Yeah. Did any of them, I mean, there must be people who just refused to do it. There was one person who refused to do it, and I told her not to read. Don't come. Yeah. To forget it. Yeah. Yeah, I said, don't come. Because the reason I say that is I'm so used to authors, a lot of times they get kind of caught up in their own self-image as a... uh, a deliverer of wisdom or truths or uh, almost a figure to be revered, you know, a rabbi type figure or something. And, and I'm wondering if any of them didn't, if they thought it would drag them down to the level of the audience by showing a a vulnerability or, or a human side. Some people did. They did. There were people who pushed back and took themselves a little too seriously. But as soon as I said, well, here's what James Salter did, you know, and and here's what Zadie Smith did. Here's what A.M. Holmes did. Here's what Laurie Anderson did. They're like, oh, oh, okay." So as, as soon as I sort of gave them examples of people who are way higher up on the level of reverence than they were. They wanted to be in that company. Oh, right. Of course. Well, the people who are higher on the list, they're always the most comfortable. It's always the the people who are, you know, at the bottom of the ladder, one or two rungs up that are the most insecure about their position. Totally. So I would just contextualize it and they'd be like, oh, okay, I'm game. I was (laughs) like, yeah, I thought you'd say that. (laughs) So. And did any of them afterwards say, did any of them tell you that they felt different when they got to the reading, that they felt more connected to the audience or that they felt like they gave a better reading of their work after having gone through that? No one ever made that connection, but yeah. people did People did say, like, that was the most fun reading I've ever done. Right. They were really, you know, the audience would really connect with the performer cause, or with the author because they didn't. The, the audience doesn't want the, the performer to fail. You know, they want them to succeed. And when an author comes out and says, all right, I have to do a risk now, the author is on their side and is like urging them on and supporting them. And so there is this sort of the connection between the performer and the audience. It's palpable and tangible. And I think that almost every single person who's read a happy ending has walked away feeling like that's how you connect to an audience. Yeah. And, you know, I think that they definitely would take parts of what they did on stage into their future performances. In fact, I know some people did. Hmm. So no one really would say like that helped me do a better reading. But Mm -hmm. I think it helped them with other things. Right. Okay, so let's get back to you and let's move toward the Rilke. So you said it was kind of around the same time that you discovered Letters to a Young Poet was around the same time. Can you tell us about the chronology of your panic attack on stage and and when you discovered this book and, and what the book did for you? Yes. So, well, the panic attack on stage and the discovering of Rilke uh, were, let's see, 27, were six years apart. So okay. it wasn't the exact same time frame. Um, but the diagnosis of my panic disorder and finding Rilke were around the same time. Oh, got it. Okay. So, yeah. So what was happening in my life at 25, 26, I was in a relationship with um, an alcoholic. And it was around the time I was 25. I had been dating him since I was 22. And I had realized around 25 
oh, I think he's an alcoholic. Mm. And I really, I really wanted to leave him. But I didn't know how because every time I would bring up, you know, a possible separation or taking some time away from him, he would, he would tell me he was going to kill himself. Mm. And so I felt really trapped and I didn't know what to do. And so I went to see this therapist and I was in the session with her and I said, I just, I can't, I need to leave him. I don't know how to leave him. I need to know like what's going to happen. What's going to happen. I just kept on asking like, what's going to happen? Like I was a story and what was the next chapter going to be? Like, tell me in advance, tell me mm. now what happens. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, you know, I, I said, I'm so miserable with this person and I just feel like empty and drained, but I'm terrified to be alone. I was just terrified. And it, because my all my anxiety is wrapped around separation. Mm. So even if I don't like the person I'm with, I'm I still there's embedded in me in my cellular DNA is the sphere of separation yeah. with someone I'm attached to. And the attachment doesn't even have to be positive. So right. just separating from someone was in and of itself a huge insurmountable hurdle to me. And in this uh, session, the therapist said, you have to live the questions. Mm. And I sort of was stopped in my tracks and I said, that is so brilliant. Oh, my God. <laughs> And she said, well, it's, I didn't, <laughs> a quote. I didn't say it. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, so honest. And she was, <laughs> she said, yeah, she said, I'm quoting someone. And I was like, well, who I th- immediately, I thought, oh, I got to see this person. Like as a, I thought she was quoting like another therapist and I was going to yeah, cheat on her right, with this right. other therapist <laughs> who, who said that brilliant thing. Right. So, um, I said, well, who said it? And she said, well, Rilke, and, uh, you know, he has a book called Letters to a Young Poet, and it's in there. And I said, great, I'm leaving now, and I'm going to get the book. And I just left. Yeah. And I went, and I got the book, and I read it at Cafe Mogador on St. Mark's Place across the street from my apartment, and I was shook. Oh. I was just shook. It was, it was, uh, there has been no greater gift to me in my life yeah. than that book in that moment. And the timing couldn't have been better. And you were the perfect audience. I mean, I I think yeah. of it as a book that it applies more to just someone who wants to write poetry. You know, it's not like a, a how-to poetry writing book or something. I think of it as being universal. But it especially, I think, appeals to someone who is feels a kind of creative impulse in themselves or who who wants to live a kind of creative life or or wants to explore that side of themselves. So it's I mean the person you were at that point, I'm sure there was a lot in there that you recognized as it must have felt like he was speaking directly to you. Oh yeah. And it wasn't for me it wasn't about the creative. I mean it was. It was about the creative, but really what that book helped me with was not fearing solitude mm. and teaching me how to be alone, yeah, which was something I needed help with. And so it cut through all this noise and fear and anxiety. And basically, it was like a rule book for living, yeah. one that I had always needed. And it said the exact right thing to me. And, 
you know, it just it basically said we're we're all alone, no matter what. You're already alone. And just reading that, mm. I thought, oh, this cut this cuts through absolutely everything. Every fear, every excuse, every justification, every reason that you could come up with for why not to why to why you should stay in something that's bad for you. Yeah. And you know, it just cut through it all. And I realized, oh my God, I, I really am alone. Like I am alone. Yeah. And I'm already doing the thing that I'm terrified of. I'm already doing it. Yeah. And that helped me immensely. It propelled me out of a relationship and into my solitude. And you know, and then I, I wrote my first novel. Mm. But it was yeah, it was instrumental was in it the, my becoming was it the uh the part in the first letter where he says basically this this young poet who was in school and and has learned from his professor that Rilke had been at the same school before and maybe had gone through some of the same questions about do I want to be a military officer or do I want to pursue a different kind of life so he reaches out to Rilke and Rilke responds and he's kind of nice and he says some nice things about the the young person's poetry but then he basically says you have asked others for help here and you have asked me for help but nobody is here to help you no one you have to go into yourself Yes. Is that the part that resonated with you? I mean, it's like on the second page, but it's it's such a it is. striking part of the book. Yeah, it's one of about six parts that resonated with me. Yeah. And, you know, you, you, you felt sort of caught because you're like, oh, shit, you busted me. Mm. I'm here, like, seek, seeking that reassurance and those answers. But, yeah, that was really helpful. Everything that Everything that I read in that book was the advice that I needed. And I could hear it. It was stated in such a way that I could actually hear it and apply it to my life. Yeah. And I had never encountered anything like that before, ever. Yeah. Not in a book. You know, uh, not that way. And there's... Yeah. The, I mean, letter eight is all about sadness and solitude and embracing all aspects of life. I've, I haven't really... I didn't really realize this until I... Uh, looked back at Rilke, but I have given a lot of, I wouldn't call it advice necessarily, but but I kind of have a take on literature. And I didn't really realize until I was rereading uh, Letters to a Young Poet, how much of the things he says reminded me of things that I've said on this podcast, that I think the way I kind of approach literature and life was formed by him. Either I, hmm. I recognized him as a kindred spirit or he pointed it out to me. But just things like embracing the ups and downs and allowing yourself to feel and to not shrink away from, you know, silence or solitude or pain, that those were mm -hmm. things that, that needed to be explored and that there was something beautiful and redeeming and life-affirming about letting yourself do that. And and so much of literature, I feel, is kind of like that, where it we don't just read about good people doing good things, but we're reading about people's agony and, and suffering and, um, and just the whole kind of universe with all of the different emotions is, is what's to be most celebrated in literature. Yes, totally. I mean, you clearly are a kindred spirit with him. You're existentially conditioned to 
agree with him, maybe. But yeah, but yeah, he it's I think that it really informed a lot of my foundational thinking about literature and how to be an artist and how to create and how to be alone and how aloneness is where you create. But, you know, when I was reading it again for this, I was struck by different things Mm. and things that I wouldn't have picked up when I was 27 and or 26, whenever I had read it um, the first time. I've read it many, many times. But this time I I realized how much of childhood he mentions. He talks Mm. a lot about childhood and going back to the root and that all of the emotions in childhood are the things that you suffer with now. And I fully believe that. And I talk about that all the time. And I'm a huge proponent of, uh, you know, of trying to tap into the, uh, your emotional self as a child, because that tells you that's when emotion was its strongest and its most profound because it's the first time you're feeling it. And so I'm constantly, you know, talking about how important reaching back and feeling that emotional state in order to write well about emotion. And I just it never it never stood out to me in mm. this book. And also, uh, you know, the, the couple of things he says about women that, you know, I know his personal life. And the way he treated women sort of went against some of the things he says in Mm. the book Mm -hmm. about women. But there are little feminist, you know, leanings in his writing, but not in his actions. And that also is, you know, it's concerning. You think, oh, here's another white guy whose words don't match his actions. But but I don't want to go down that road because the, the book means too much to me. Yeah. Well, I don't like excusing people, you know, just based on the time that they lived in. But I do feel like Rilke, had he been born 100 years later, uh, would probably be a different kind of person in terms of his treatment of women. That's my hope anyway. Yeah, I I would hope that, too. But who who knows? Yeah, I guess um, that's right. I mean, who knows if you get away with things, you know, in one era, you might try and get away with worse in another. Mm. Yeah. But uh, did you look at Rilke? I mean, the Rilke, when he wrote these letters, was about the same age that you were when you were encountering them. Yeah. Did you look at him as yeah. a did you look at him as a, a, a religious figure, a holy man or a, a voice of wisdom and experience or or what was your take on him as a speaker? I think all of it. I think I, I looked at him as a voice of extreme knowing yeah and as a someone who was much much older than me yeah in you know in not in years necessarily but just in life in experience right. and um and as a type of parent weirdly enough you know i read it as like oh, this is the advice i would want from a parent yeah this is what this is what i would want to be raised on this is how i would want to be talk to yeah you know i i want to face the things not avoid them and you know i was never really allowed to face my fears there was always some way that i was taught to avoid 
going for going toward what I was scared of. I, you know, I would always get out of things. My parents would get me out of things that scared me instead of helping me face them. And so here was this person who was saying, no, face them, yeah. you know, go into yourself, go toward your fears, go towards that, those questions and this darkness and this terror. And that's where you'll find your answers. And right. I, I just felt like, this is the most valuable life information yeah. I've I could ever want. Yeah. So it was like a Bible. It was like a, a Bible for how to live the way I wanted to live. That's that's beautifully and put, and that's the thing that that always gets me about it is that it doesn't just feel like, well, here's how to succeed or here's something to do, but this is how you should live. This is how you should think of life. Yeah. The the really odd thing is it's going to sound really strange, perhaps, but I have never, ever, not once read Letters to a Young Poet for any sort of creative right. insight or input, ever. It's always been about how to be a human in this world and yeah. facing fear and how to be alone when you're afraid of it. It's never, except for the, the one, the one section on don't ask others for their critical feedback. Yeah, right. Um, that was a very helpful <laughs> tip, yeah. but uh, for, uh, you know, creativity. But other than that, it was really, I went to this book to teach me how to live. Yeah. And it did. And I think that's maybe what Rilke was doing when he read uh, Franz's poems, is that he maybe mm -hmm. thought, you know, I could give him advice on his poems, and he he sprinkles a little bit of in, of that in there, not mm -hmm. much. And it's even more than just sort of saying, well, if I correct some lines or I point out, you know, different word choices or imagery or something, it's even more than saying that that would be enough to... Uh, make him a better poet. He seems to have recognized in the poems what this person really needs is to hear what I have to say about how he should live. That the that mm -hmm. is going to open him up. If he's going to be successful as a poet, it's going to be because first he's learned how to live. Exactly. I think that Rilke was saying it doesn't really matter you know what i say about your poems because you haven't suffered <laughs> you mm. haven't mm -hmm. you haven't felt the pain that that you're you're avoiding basically yeah these poems are not who you are they're who you want to be so yeah. go be who you are yeah and then you can write the poems that mean something yeah and then you can tell from, you know, we only see one side of the correspondence. You you get hints about what Franz is asking him about. But you can tell that Rilke is basically reorienting the questions, taking the letter and, and treating it seriously, yep. but also kind of saying this is a bigger, broader way to think. We're really lucky that Franz recognized what Rilke was doing and, and thought that it was worth uh, keeping and publishing. Oh, God, we are so lucky. And I'm really grateful that he kept his letters out. Me you too. Know, it makes it a stronger, it makes it a much stronger piece. I think so. And it, because what, yeah, what it does is it, is it speaks 
to to each reader and it answers each reader's questions yeah instead of franz's yep. and because the the you know the responses it's like a horoscope they apply to everyone mm, you know yeah and, right and so yeah i'm completely grateful that that he saved these letters and and published them and in the edition I have, he has a little introduction. He has this beautiful quote, Franz does, where he says, where a great and unique man speaks, small men should keep silence. And it just, mm. he just, uh, he seems like a really likable uh, person, Franz Kappas. Um, <laughs> I am grateful totally. to him for Wait, uh, doing this. What version, uh, what book do you have? I've got the Norton. It's a little black and white cover. It's got sort of a, a checkerboard pattern at the bottom half of the book. I think oh, I have yeah. a couple of different oh, yeah. ones. I also have a tiny square version like that you, you get when you're checking out at the bookstore. Get store. at the checkout. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> totally. I have the um, the Stephen Mitchell translation. Oh, which yep. is the, the I have the one that I bought that day, and I, it's underlined and got cigarette stains and everything on it. Um and I have a couple of others, but this one, the Stephen Mitchell translation, is my absolute favorite. Mm, um, I've read yeah. the others, but this one is something about this one. Maybe it's just because it's the one I read. Yeah. First. Well, he but, is Mitchell is my yeah. favorite translator of Rilke's poetry. I actually came to the poetry first. Mm. I had it assigned in a class on modernism. Uh, and I was kind of blown away. And then I went through this period where I was reading everything I could by different authors and poets and, and novelists that I had liked. And so ran across this. There's not a whole lot to read by Rilke. It, it doesn't take long. This isn't a real deep dive. This is one of the first things that right. that come up when you're trying to find more by Rilke. And uh uh, I was just blown away when I read it the first time, but I certainly didn't come to it with uh, the same. It was almost like your whole life, you might say, was leading up to this moment where this book was was there for you and it, it tapped into so much uh, that was just waiting there in you to come out. Yeah, it it was pretty much like the answer yeah. for me. Yeah. You know, that I remember I remember that year that I discovered it. I it was and it was my answer to absolutely everything. People would say something and I say, Read letters to a young poet. <laughs> they they <laughs> fall out of a window. I'd be like, oh, read letters to a young poet. They'd yeah. be, you know, they an arsonist. I'd be like, No, 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 just read letters to a young poet. Everything. Yeah. It was my response. Yeah. It just was the answer. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a little embarrassed to uh, to recall my my. <laughs> I had a, sort of a similar uh, take on the book where I would cop. This was back when we were writing letters to people, and I would copy out passages uh -huh. to people as if uh, you oh. know unsolicited advice. Oh, as if I guess. you wrote them? No, 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 no. <laughs> but I would oh. say like, oh, you've got to read this. I would, you know, here's a paragraph Rilke wrote, or I think I was probably doing it as a a manifesto. Of um, <laughs> that was kind of the approach I was taking toward it. Of we can we can talk about where I am and the stuff that I did yesterday and the stuff I'm planning to do tomorrow. But uh, if you really want to know what's on my mind, uh, here's something <laughs> you need to know that has really resonated with me recently. And then I would write out you know a couple pages of the <laughs> of the letters. But to those a young are poet. the best letters. Those are the yeah. best letters. Yeah. And they I don't. Wish, uh, I wish I had gotten that. Uh, 
and I don't. Well, you know, if we had known each other, we would have been writing letters. That's the age that we are. Um, I don't know that it happens this way. I remember, I'll tell you a funny story about writing letters, too. I was in Taiwan, and I was writing letters to uh, all these different friends of mine from college. And I had a letter that I wrote to one uh, woman in particular. And then, you know, I had crossed some things out and like I just wasn't real happy with it. So I was rewriting it. And I had a student I was teaching in Taiwan and the student was this this guy. I, I guess he was probably in his 30s or something. And he said, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm writing a letter. And he said, oh, to your girlfriend? And I said, no, no, just just a friend. And he said, you're copying you're like you're you're make, you're you're making it perfect and actually that ended up being the woman i ended up marrying that he he had had that insight Aww. of like if you are writing a letter by hand and then you are writing a second copy of it because you are unhappy with the mistakes and the cross outs and you're trying to get the words right he sort of he was the first one to sort of uh put it in my mind that uh, I thought about her differently from how I thought about just my other friends and and mm-hmm. the other <laughs> the other people I knew. So there was something I beautiful. Love I love about, that detail. Yeah, there was something beautiful about writing letters. I was going to ask you, because you've met so many writers and artists and creative people, if you think that that they tend to be like Rilke and calm and self-assured, like the Rilke, at least in the <laughs> letters to a young poet, or do you think they're more like Franz, where they're a little needy, a little a little desperate, a little uh, frenetic, trying to prove themselves or, or hoping that they're worthy and, and looking for approval? Well, I am stationed in New York City, so you you can imagine. Um, And I think it just really depends on what level of success the author has. Mm. But I would say I have have met less people like Rilke than I have not. Mm. Is that right? I have met less people. I don't know. It's like a double negative. I can't do it. I have not met as many people who are like Rilke than I have met people who are not like Rilke. Right. there's a lot of insecurity. I mean, anyone mm. who wants to be in the public eye is has some insecurity that mm. they need that validation. Yeah. I I think the older you get, the more confident you feel mm-hmm. about not necessarily your work, but about, you know, like the, life choices. The amount of Yeah, and the amount yeah. of time it's taking you to yeah, write or right. the you know, you're not racing. Yeah. You're not racing against, you know, all these people. You and it's set up that way to feel like a race and it's or a competition and and it is and it isn't, yeah. you know, right? Um, because it's also just sort of luck, timing, and who you know. Yeah, you know, oh. that's that's where a lot of success comes in. Yeah, but um, but yeah, I wish I wish I could say that I've I you know, met more people who are like Rilke than not, but I can't, I can't say that. I, I feel mm. like I've met more, uh, I definitely haven't met many men who mm. embody Rilke's wisdom. Yeah. Uh, but I've met many, many women who do. Oh, 
Fascinating. The spiritual maturity is more of a mm-hmm. like a late career artist, uh, a woman. Well, it doesn't have to be late career. It can be early career, too. But you see that more in yeah. artistic women that you've met. Yeah. I mean, I'd say the one man who I think really has a lot of insight and sort of I, I hate the word spiritual, but spiritual leanings like a, a presence. Is, or, yeah. Yeah, would be George Saunders. Oh, yeah. You know, I think that he has some of that writing about, you know, not in the same way, certainly not like as advice, but the way that he writes, what he writes about, how he's getting his points across. His points are all, you know, he's he writes about Buddhism and how to live life and how to be in life. And, you know, I'm actually weirdly, very weirdly enough, I'm in a slight... um, Rilke Kappus correspondence with him right now. Mm. And it's very sweet and I'm really enjoying it. And it's email, you know, but it's very, it's just so lovely. We're in this thing where we're exchanging pieces of music or pieces of art that, that move us. Yeah. And um, so he's been sending me links to YouTube videos and I've been sending him um, I, I'm well behind him. I, I've, I think I've sent him one and he sent me like six. But, um, you know, what do you send George Saunders to blow him away? It's hard to find more than one thing. <laughs> but uh, so but everything he sends me, I'm blown away. Like I'm a new dimension is ripped open in me and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm alive in a new way. I never knew. Yeah. But I, there is something about his work. And he, he was telling me in this exchange that he teaches um he teaches in one of his classes the art of escalation by showing a Charlie Chaplin clip. And, mm. you know, I, I loved that. I loved that he's so committed to teaching, you know, he teaches life as yeah. writing. Right. And um, so I, I think that maybe he he's up there. Yeah. Oh, that's there. great. Yeah. Well, I've kept you too long, but I do have a surprise bonus question. <gasps> what? What? Are you ready? Um, yes. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Okay. Go. Okay. One night, you fall asleep in bed with a copy of Letters to a Young Poet in your hand. You awake and find that a literary genie has arrived. Congratulations, she says. You are a novelist. And in fact, over the next 10 years, we're going to grant you one portion of the creative life that we granted Rilke. He had two very different artistic experiences. The first one is the Duino Elegies. Those poems took him 10 years to write with a lot of fits and starts, ups and downs, pauses and resumptions. If you choose this path, for the next 10 years, you will be consumed with your creative project. There will be days when you're floating on air and days when you're, you'll be banging your head against the wall. That's option one. Option two okay. is more like Rilke's experience writing sonnets to Orpheus. In that version, you will not be living a creative life at all during the bulk of those 10 years. You'll be living a normal civilian life, not artistic, but not feeling the absence of it either. And then, in a two-week period, you will be seized by inspiration. And as with Rilke, who wrote 55 sonnets in a sudden, breathless state of artistic reverie, you will write your entire novel. Then the muse will leave you and you'll return to your normal, (laughs) pleasant existence. Whichever path you choose, the end result will be the same. You will have produced one amazing work, the same high quality, the same output. The only difference will be in the life you live during those 10 years. 
which path do you choose? Oh my God, what a wonderful question. I love that. Hmm. Um, Okay, so here's my answer. My answer is, I feel like I already lived the first option when I was writing my my memoir. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I feel like I already did that. I did that. For four and a half years, I was... Um, all it was an all-encompassing yeah. despair and 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 then mania and like joy and then debilitating pain yeah. for four and a half unrelenting years. So I'm going to say I'm going to choose option number two. Option two, try that one. Yeah, my because my actual civilian life is filled with creativity. Yeah, I mean, I my my apartment's like a factory. I make things all the time. I'm painting, I'm drawing, I'm dyeing clothes, I'm making clothes, I'm taking clothes apart. I'm always doing something. Yeah. Um and I feel that's my regular civilian life. Mm. So because I have suffered in such a way already, I'm going to choose option 2. Okay. And I hope this happens tomorrow. <laughs> I hope the genie will be there tomorrow. <laughs> right. Well, I was going to say, I think Rilke would have chosen the first path to say you live more in those ups and downs. You learn more about yourself. You have a fuller life. But if you've already done it, that's a different story. I already did it. I already yeah. did it. Then I, think- I mean, I'm happy to I'm happy to do it again, but uh, but not I want to do it again in like five years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and this way, I mean, if you know the two weeks is coming. Uh, and you know you're going to have the book at the end of it, uh, you'd have to be a little insane to take on all that misery, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to do the decent, logical thing, because I never do the decent, logical thing. Yeah. So there you go. And there's also something... Would... Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, which would you choose? Well, you know, that's the thing. I mean, in some ways, it's it's hard to say... Well, you shouldn't want to have the creative, uh, you know, the experience of the 10 years, the ups and the downs and, and, and feel all the joy and all the pain and all the frustration. You'd feel like you'd really earned the book. But in the other, you know, as I get older, I realize mm-hmm. the advantages of learning to love what's come your way. And learning to appreciate mm-hmm. that for what it is. And, and part of this is me just kind of coming to grips with uh, the podcast, which is by far more successful than anything else that I've done uh, creatively, like by mm-hmm. a factor of a million. And so it's kind of like, <laughs> you know, learning to embrace that and learning to live in that and to say, you know, maybe this is just something I'm better at than than other kinds of endeavors. And maybe that's not a bad thing. Maybe there's uh, something to that and, and something about connecting with people in this different way that I should just learn to appreciate. I'm going to disagree that that because your show has been the most successful thing you've done means that you're better at it than other things. Mm. I don't think that that's true. Yeah. I think it has nothing it has nothing to do with you. I mean it does yeah. obviously, but it's right. the popularity of it has to you know is a sort of a convergence of a lot of different things and it doesn't mean popularity doesn't mean you're better at one thing than another right you know like happy ending was incredibly popular i think i did it well but i don't think it's the best the thing i'm best at Mm. 
you know, it just was the thing people needed. So you're doing something that people need and you're good at it. But I don't think that it means this is that you're the best. You're better at this than anything else. Right. It's the the thing uh, where I've gotten the most affirmation. But that's not necessarily exactly. means that it's the most uh, successful or accomplished or or achieved. It's just the kind of right place, yeah. right time. It's finding the right niche. Yeah, it's your you've hit the collective G spot. <laughs> Someone said that once. <laughs> well, I I don't think we're going to top that. So let's end there. Amanda Stern, thank you <laughs> okay. so much for joining me on the history of literature. Jack, this was incredibly wonderful, and I wish that I could um, be on every single podcast episode that you do. So thank you so much. Okay, there we go. My thanks to Rilke for writing this marvelous book, and to Amanda for that marvelous conversation. I think she'd be willing to come back don't you? She said so. (laughs) We recorded it. I will try to make that happen. That was a lovely conversation. Man, I am still buzzing from it. I don't want to wrap this up. I'm like the guy at the bar who's not finished, even as everyone else is wandering out the door. Don't go yet. I'm just getting started. I'll order another pitcher. More wine, please. Stay. Stay. Hey. Hey, I heard they play the trivia game here. Why don't you hang around? Oh, oh, you don't like trivia games? Darts! They play darts too. We can throw darts and count up the score and it'll be fun and we can keep talking. And I know the sun's coming up, but don't go. No, don't go, people. I'm Jack Wilson and I'll see you next time. But please, please just stay a few more minutes. Tell me about yourself. Tell me about your childhood, where you were in life when you started reading Proust. Where? Huh? How about Joyce? How about Wolf? Kafka? Kafka? We can talk about Kafka. You like Kafka, don't you? Kafka! Kafka, stay! Stay for Kafka! Don't go! Kafka! 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 Thank you.